You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The world is filled with many questions, such as, did giants exist? What is junk DNA? Does it mean that you're trash? Do you ever wonder if aliens have underwater bases in our oceans, and that's why there are so many UFO sightings off the coasts of islands all over the world? How serious even is climate change, and when should we start building our rafts? Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Brenna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore the answers to these questions and many, many more in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything, available everywhere you get your podcasts. Death is easily found along the shores of Rubicon Lake. I'm Jenny Williamson. And I'm Jen McMenemy. And this is Ancient History Fangirl, and I am so thrilled to be talking about this topic. Oh my god. (laughs) This topic, this spooky season episode that Jenny got super excited about writing and was like, hey Jen, I'm doing two spooky season episodes this year. And I was like, whoa, someone's coming for my throne. Well, one, my next one that I'm doing is not a spooky season episode, but we've got more spooky season episodes planned than we have slots for spooky season. So get ready for a very spooky arc, you guys. Get ready. A very spooky autumn because we are delving into mysteries and some of those mysteries are, you know, mysterious of a spooky nature. And yes, I did want to use mystery so many times in a sentence. Mysterious mysteries of a spooky, possibly skeletal nature. This is definitely one of those. It's about skeletons in a lake. Skeleton lake. I'm just going to say, for those for those of us in the UK, I am recording this during the, the second heat wave in August. And in order to record this, I have to be in a very hot room with no windows, no doors, nothing open. That is my dedication to you and to spooky season. I'm also very sweaty. Well, this is a time for you to use your imagination, Jen, because we are about to take a mental trek of the mind up to somewhere very cold and very spooky... The icy grip of death will be upon you. I don't know why I said that in a Scottish accent. It's not at all about Scotland, you guys, at all. <laughs> Can you do it again, not in a Scottish accent? <laughs> I just, I can't, I can't say that sentence without sounding Scottish. I cannot do it. Uh, I apologize in advance to our Scottish listeners. You're just going to have to deal with my very bad Scottish accent. Sounds like a typical American. <laughs> anyway. All right, strap in, you guys, because I'm about to tell you about the mystery of Skeleton Lake. In 1942, a forest ranger named Harry Kishan Mudwal, apologies if I mispronounced this gentleman's name, I hope I did not, was hiking on an isolated, little-traveled route in Nanda Devi National Park, deep in the Himalayas, in the northern Indian state of Uttarakhand. Rising over 16,000 feet in elevation, he crested a ridge that looked down a steep-sided funnel of ice and boulders. At the bottom was a small, almost perfectly circular glacial lake, frozen solid into a blue disk. And there, strewn about the frozen, rocky beach, 
and visible under the ice lay skeletons, hundreds of skeletons, some with flesh still clinging to the bones. World War II was raging at the time, and India was controlled by the British, so Modwall reported his find to the British authorities. The initial theory was that these were contemporary skeletons, Japanese soldiers who died of exposure while attempting to invade India. That theory turned out to be wrong. More theories would proliferate over the years, and folklore would spring up around these bones. But the mystery would remain, and the more scientists found out about Skeleton Lake, the more the mystery deepened. The lake where the skeletons were found is named Rupkund Lake. It's actually not named Skeleton Lake. It's named Rupkund Lake. And what does Rupkund mean? So I think in Hindi, Rupkund means beautifully shaped lake. I've seen pictures of it. I think the shape changes because it does go um, up and down in size depending on like the glacial melt. But it's like this perfectly circular blue disc. It's really beautiful. And then you look up close and you see that it has a dark secret. Yeah, it's like me, mysterious and full of dark secrets. Um, anyway. No follow-up questions. <laughs> None. I know, I'm a modern mystery, it's fine. <laughs> ancient history fangirl, ancient! <laughs> I was worried you were going to make a joke about my age. <laughs> You're younger than me, I'm not making that joke. Someone else can make that joke. <laughs> anyway, Rupkund Lake is a tiny glacial lake that grows and shrinks based on the season and glacial flow, but it's rarely more than approximately 10 feet deep and about 130 feet wide. The lake is frozen in the winter, locking the bones in a tomb of ice for most of the year. And I just want to pause for a second and tell you guys that I grew up in Vermont. My dad still has a house up there, and there is a pond where I used to swim as a kid. And I called my dad to verify the numbers on this. And Rubicon Lake, people refer to it as a lake. It is, in fact, approximately the same size as the pond where I grew up swimming. And it is chock full of bones. I wonder if... They call it a lake because it gets bigger when it melts. I will say that I've seen different measurements for it. So I imagine people have measured it at different times when it's different sizes. So the nearest settlement to Rupkun Lake is the tiny mountain town of Wan. It's about five to eight days journey by foot away. The path from Wan winds steadily upward through pristine forests and vast meadows strewn with wildflowers. These are the Bugyals. Alpine Himalayan meadows that are biodiversity hotspots and also very delicate ecosystems. They generally thrive at elevations from around 10,000 to 15,000 feet in the high Himalayan mountains and are, I would say, you can generally access them all year round, but there are some times in the season when you definitely do not want to go up there. Like the weather is very unpredictable. Yeah, because it's so high up. They're snow covered in winter. But I think it's more, the dangerous thing is really the monsoon season because of the storms that are quite unpredictable. And that occurs, I believe, from around June to August. But the path to Rubkun keeps rising, past the Bugyals, up a series of steep switchbacks, through high forests and rocky terrain. This is an incredibly steep trek in places, rising over 6,000 feet in just about 30 miles. While 30 miles might not seem like a lot, because of the difficult terrain, it could take up to eight days or more to get there. Up this high, there is no vegetation, only rocks, ice, and snow. The weather is already unpredictable in the high Himalayas. But up here, there's less shelter from fierce winds, deep snows, and ferocious whiteout storms. And we're now at twice the height when altitude sickness starts. Up here in this formidable icy landscape at an elevation of about 16,470 feet sits Rubkund Lake, 
a pristine disk of ice at the bottom of a steep-sided bowl amidst glacial fields strewn with boulders. Behind it, the Himalayans rise and rise, some of the highest, most forbidding mountains in the world. The path to Rubkun Lake doesn't stop at the lake. It continues on through the mountains as part of an ancient pilgrimage that occurs once every 12 years, called the Nanda Devi Rajyat Yatra. Again, apologies to anyone who speaks Hindi. This may be the most dangerous pilgrimage route in the world, and the most dangerous stretch of road along this route runs on the ridgeline high above Skeleton Lake. The locals call it the Jumra Gali, or Path of Death. Rukun Lake may be tiny, but it is full of bones. Bones of roughly 300 to 800 individuals are at rest in and around the lake. Many are in the lake itself, but others are strewn about the lakeshore. Some bones are visible only when the lake shrinks. Some are entirely submerged. Rubkund Lake is frozen most of the year. It melts during the brief summer months, which occur roughly between June and August, which also coincides with the monsoon. Well, yeah, that's why I think, and I, I can't 100% confirm this, Jen, because again, this is, this is a little bit vague, but I think that most of the time when trekkers and possibly even pilgrims get there, most of the time when people see this lake, it is frozen because it's too dangerous to go up there during the height of the monsoon season. So that's my sense of things. I'm, I'm extrapolating that. <laughs> I'm just picturing my backyard pond with 300 to 800 skeletons in it. <laughs> like, when, when does it become more bones than water? That is, that is what we're dealing with here. Yeah, absolutely. And, I mean, 10 feet deep, it, it's deep, but it's not that deep. I'm just asking you to picture this with me right now. Up high in the high, high Himalayas, higher than the high-altitude Bugyals, up there where the storms rage and it's whiteout snow conditions and it's rocks and boulders, up above a knife-edge ridgeline with the winds hurtling down on you and the snow and the storms and the vast countryside spread out all around you, up there in the heights scraping the sky is this tiny, tiny lens of blue. And in that lens of blue are 300 to 800 skeletons. Picture it with me. Can you imagine looking down into that lens of blue? It would be like an eye looking back at you from the earth. With bones in it. I was getting there filled with bones. Kind of like a creepy high altitude whirlpool just sucking things into it. I know, right? So I'm going to get back to the story. Right. So, the first modern scientific investigation of the site was conducted in 1956 by the Anthropological Society of India. It took several tries to reach the site due to the dangerous weather we just debated, but eventually a team of scientists managed to reach the site and collect bone samples. They conducted carbon dating and found that the bones were approximately 500 to 800 years old. Over the years, Lots of theories sprang up around Skeleton Lake and the bones therein. Maybe the skeletons were an invading army from the 13th century, bound for Tibet. They got lost in the mountains, caught in the open on the lakeshore, and died of exposure. Or, counterpoint, maybe they were traitors, also bound for Tibet. This general region was part of the Salt Road that connected Tibet and Nepal, in Tibet, they traded, I believe, rice to the people of Nepal, who brought salt to the people of Tibet. They traded a lot, so there was a lot of trade activity. Perhaps these were traders who also lost their way and died by the lakeshore from exposure. Maybe the lake was a holy site 
where ascetics took their own lives as part of a religious ritual. Or, perhaps the lake was used as a local cemetery or a dumping ground for plague bodies. Or maybe the skeletons were pilgrims performing the Nanda Devi Raj Jat Yatra. So there may be something to that last one. Hello everyone, Stakuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. I'm Helena Bonham Carter, and for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes, a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II. They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk-takers. What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts. Nobody's really sure how long the Nanda Devi Rajat Yatra pilgrimage has been going on. One of the villages along the pilgrimage route, Nati, which I believe was the one where they start, kept records of the pilgrimages starting in 1820. However, earlier folk traditions and inscriptions suggest that the local communities had been celebrating their own pilgrimages since the 800s AD, and this was combined into a single pilgrimage, possibly in the 1400s by the rulers of the Garhwal Kingdom, an ancient independent kingdom in the Himalayas that existed before the modern Indian state of Uttarakhand. In the 1970s, an American anthropologist named William Sachs discovered a reference to the lake in a book as a graduate student and made Rupkund his life's work. He visited the site in the 1970s and even participated in the pilgrimage. In his book, Mountain Goddess, Sachs tells the story of reaching the lake in a white-out blizzard after a grueling hike, stumbling blindly around the desolate, skeleton-strewn lakeshore and nearly dying of exposure himself. He was bedridden for 10 days after he managed to drag himself back to Juan. And this demonstrates how dangerous this hike can be. He just dragged his carcass back to the village. This is like, oh God, no further. This is why I keep all of my travels to the water. (laughs) You know, after reading this, I was very much like, I want to do this pilgrimage. How do I get hooked up? I don't know if my body can handle it, but I'm very intrigued. I don't think my body could handle this just because, like, I I do suffer from asthma and a few other things. Like, I think the altitude would be very difficult for me. Not to mention the grueling hike. I just think the altitude to start would be a problem. Yeah, you'd you'd have to acclimate. (laughs) I would. And even then, I'd be a, a little anxious. But, I mean, it sounds incredible. It really, really does. So, Sachs spent a lot of time in the village of Juan and other villages in the area getting to know the locals who had their own folklore about the skeletons in the lake. Juan is located along the Nanda Devi pilgrimage route, and there's a rich tradition of songs and stories associated with the goddess and the pilgrimage. The goddess Nanda Devi is an aspect of Parvati, 
one of the most prominent Hindu goddesses. According to the mythology, Nanda Devi once left her mountain home to visit an ancient kingdom nearby, but the king and queen did not treat her with the respect due to a goddess of her stature. Furious, Nanda Devi rained down vengeance on the kingdom, cursing it with droughts and maggots as one does. As you do, I am here for this, Nanda Devi. Yes. Goddamn right. Make with the maggots until, <laughs> until they're ready to respect you. Anyway, the king and queen knew that they had messed up, and they knew that they had to smooth things over with Nanda Devi. Yeah, they did. They had to make some real amends. They had to make a sacrifice to this goddess. Like, this is serious stuff going on. Yeah, so they embarked on a pilgrimage together. But the king, who liked to have a good time, brought along all his favorite musicians and courtesans who danced and made merry along the pilgrimage route and just had a good time. I don't see this going well. Nada Devi was not cool with this. She was not down with this tone. She sent a vicious hailstorm that bludgeoned the party to death and swept the skeletons into the lake, where they reside to this day, a dire warning to anyone who does not respect the goddess. Here's how Sachs describes this epic pilgrimage, which still does take place today. And it's, it's I've seen some um, YouTube videos of the pilgrimage. It's, it's quite colorful and musical. And so here's how it's described in Mountain Goddess. Quote, once every 12 years, when it is thought that some calamity had taken place because of the curse of the goddess Nanda Devi, a four-horned ram is born in the fields of the former king of Garhwal, an erstwhile central Himalayan kingdom in northern India. This four-horned ram leads a procession of priests and pilgrims on the most dangerous and spectacular pilgrimage in all of India, a three-week barefoot journey of 164 miles during some of the worst weather of the year, at the end of the rainy season, the procession reaches Rupkund, a small pond located at an altitude of more than 5,000 meters, which is surrounded by human skeletons. And from there, it goes yet further, to Homkund, the lake of the fire sacrifice. According to the faithful, the four-horned ram leaves the procession at that point and finds its way unaided to the summit of Mount Trishul. Apologies for any mispronunciations that have occurred in that paragraph. In 2005, another serious scientific expedition was planned to Rupkond, this time by National Geographic. They made a documentary called Riddle of the Dead, The Mystery of Skeleton Lake. By now, the route to Rupkond Lake had become a popular trekking destination, despite the danger, and the site had been ravaged by foreign tourists. The bones were moved from their original locations, disarticulated and arranged in cairns and decorative piles and tourists had taken bones from the site as souvenirs. Ugh, what ghoulish tourists. Rock slides were also not uncommon and had disturbed the site over decades and centuries. This was not an easy place to study. Like, nothing is really in situ there. You can't assume that the bones that are there are where they fell. Yeah, they're not, they didn't originally fall there. So even so, the scientists conducted a survey of the site and took samples. What they found disproved many of the prevailing theories of the time. First off, there was no way that these bones were from soldiers. No horses or weapons were found, and the bones belonged to women and children as well as men. There was no indication that anyone was murdered, had taken their own life, or had died of disease. It was unlikely the place was a cemetery, as the dead were mostly healthy individuals in the prime of life. Mostly between 18 and 35 years old, although there were also some older people aged 55 and up, as well as some teenagers and even one 10-year-old child. DNA testing discovered that there were two genetic groups, one taller, more robust group from elsewhere in India, 
and another smaller, more lightly built, with depressions in the skull, where they may have carried heavy loads. The theory is that the first group were Indian outsiders to the area, and the second group were local porters hired to take them into the mountains. But that theory about the bones belonging to traders, that was also very unlikely. The scientists conducted a geographic analysis of the area and concluded that there wasn't a trade route here. Tibet wasn't that far away geographically, only about 35 miles, and the trek from Nepal to Tibet was an important part of the ancient Salt Road. However, the researchers found there was no trade route in this area, not historically and not in the present. The mountain route here was very dangerous, even for this region, and there were other safer trade routes elsewhere. Plus, the skeletons had neither trade goods nor beasts of burden to carry them. If they'd been traders, they'd have had rice or salt to trade, plus sheep, goats, and yaks to carry these goods, and also to provide wool for blankets and meat and milk for survival along the arduous trip, as this was how the ancient merchants of the time survived on these difficult routes. What they did have were bangles made of glass and seashell, leather slippers, bits of parasols made of birch bark and bamboo, and musical instruments, kind of like that sacrilegious, fun-loving pilgrimage procession led by that mythical king. Hmm. I have questions about the parasols, and Jenny's going to give me answers. Yeah, Jen was like, tell me all about these parasols. And I'm like, I'll see what I can dig up. Because <laughs> if you know anything about me, it's I love a brightly colored parasol because I live in England. And secondly, because I'm a ginger and have to hide from the sun. Anyway, the parasols are an important part of the procession of Nanda Devi. William Sachs, in his book, Mountain Goddess, breaks down why there are parasols, musical instruments and such involved in this procession. Here's how he puts it. Lay it on us, Jenny. Quote, in order to restore prosperity and harmony, the king is compelled to lay on a feast for Nanda Devi and escort her back to Mount Kailash, and this is the origin of the royal procession. It begins at Nanda's temple in Nati village in Chandpur and is organized by the Natiyal Brahmins of the same place. These are lowlanders, as he refers to them, because the people who live in the mountains are, are highlanders and there are significant cultural differences. The lowlanders base their authority to manage the royal procession upon their relation to the kings of Garhwal. They claim descent from one of twelve Brahmins who were settled by the dynastic founder in twelve villages around the old fort in Chandpur. The castes descended from these twelve are collectively known as the twelve-place Brahmins and are the highest-ranked local caste. Because the lowlanders served as royal gurus or religious preceptors of the king, they are first among the twelve-place Brahmins and are thus the highest-ranked caste in Garhwal. Once every generation, each of the twelve-place Brahmin lineages chooses a representative who takes up a bamboo parasol and joins the royal procession at a predetermined point in Chanpur. During the three weeks of the pilgrimage, the procession is led by the mysterious four-horned ram, regarded as an incarnation of the goddess, herself the source of royal power. The ram is followed by the royal parasol, a symbol of the king and his descendant, the prince. Next come the parasols of the twelve-place Brahmins, followed by hundreds of pilgrims, most of whom are farmers of the dominant local caste. Drummers from the lowest castes also accompany the procession as far as the final village of Bala, thereby completing an assemblage that represents all the castes in Garhwal. That's so fascinating. I'm so glad you sort of dug into that for me. So these processions go forward in a way that preserves elements of caste and status that are important to this community. And the parasols people carry are how they signify their status, caste, and role in this procession. 
There are also drums, bugles, and other musical instruments played during the pilgrimage. And there's singing. People sing folk songs and, and religious songs and things. That's Music is a big part of the pilgrimage as well. It makes sense, though, because like part of how you keep that group of people in a sort of like line and in time goes back to like singing. Yeah, it's like about coordinating a group and keeping people moving in a certain time. Possibly, yeah. Maybe it's a way that people keep themselves together. It also makes a loud noise. So like any sort of predators that might have been up there would know there's a big procession coming. I don't know what lives up there, but I'm sure things live up there. I can't I can't say what animals live up there, but maybe. I mean, I don't know what lives up there, and I don't want to make any any guesses that it's like yetis or Bigfoots. But I think anywhere that has woods and forests have yetis and Bigfoots. Possibly it's yetis, Bigfoots, Atalanta, you know. Atalanta's definitely up there, Artemis. <laughs> you don't want to startle Artemis. She'll turn you into a, a deer. A beer. You're deer, a deer. A beer. A bear. A beer. <laughs> and then she'll drink you for seeing her naked. <laughs> That's how it works in the myth, right? Anyway. Sachs also points out that the people performing this procession do so not only on the most dangerous route in all of India, but during the most dangerous time of year. And the religious leaders in this procession, who are believed to be possessed by the goddess, are frequently seen making the trip barefoot and dressed very lightly. The difficulty, in other words, appears to be part of how people prove their devotion to Nanda Devi. The fact that they're barefoot and dressed lightly is sort of the showing of their devotion. It's not all about Catholic suffering <laughs> as I grew up, but it, there is an element of suffering. Yeah, I think that's part of it. In more recent years, trekking in this area has become popular, as we've said, and tourists come from all over to make the hike to Rubkun. And this is not a sacred journey for them. It's a secular tourist trip. I didn't read much about this, but it wouldn't surprise me if the locals have real mixed feelings about this, because this is their sacred, their sacred processional way. And these are people just kind of Going up there and walking around and just treating it like, I mean, I'm not saying that they don't appreciate where they are, but they're not treating it like it's a, it's a religious experience in this religion. You know, this is secular for them. And they're doing things like taking the bones back with them and things like that. So, I mean, I'm sure they're not, not everybody is respectful as they could be. Or not only that, stacking them in Karens. Like making grisly monuments with them, which is not necessarily what the locals and, and the people of that area would want done to those bones or how they would want them displayed. I mean, there's also, you know, you get tourist money from this. It's the contradiction, right? You need the money to help sustain your economy. But also the people who are tracking through are not treating your environment the way that you want them to treat your environment. Yeah. And I'm not, you know, casting disparagement on everybody who goes up there. But I'm definitely getting the sense of, like, people taking the bones and piling them in carns and stuff. It, it doesn't strike me as that respectful because this is also, you know, it's almost like, you know, people's church in, in a sense. It's also a burial place. It would be kind of like these people who have been entombed in the lake are entombed there. Removing their bones from the lake and making a carn out of them is kind of sacrilege to, like, where their, their resting place is. So, the optimal time to trek to Rubkun is generally from May to June before the monsoon season or from September to October after the monsoon season. So, you want to avoid the monsoon season. That's very key. But traditionally, the Nanda Devi Raja Yatra is performed right at the very end of the rainy season in August. And that's really walking a tightrope because the weather at this time can be unpredictable and deadly. 
For instance, um, in June of 2013, a sudden extreme storm, a cloudburst, caused havoc in the mountains of Uttarakhand. The storm dumped massive amounts of rain, hail, and snow on the area, causing rivers to overflow, washing out bridges and roads, destroying villages, and killing over 6,000 people, both tourists and locals. More than 300,000 pilgrims and trekkers were trapped in the high valleys and had to be evacuated out by the Indian military. That year, the Nanda Devi Raj Jat Yatra was supposed to take place in August, and it was postponed to 2014. And this storm, it just it just happened over the course of a day. Like, it was a cloudburst, which means it was, like, very fast and very destructive. See, this doesn't surprise me because, weirdly, I never want to climb Mount Everest or K2. But I've seen quite a few documentaries, and, like, these storms in the high Himalayas and in these high mountains can just appear. Like, one day it's fine, it looks great, and then the next you have this storm. And that's why, like, when people are climbing Everest, they have a very small window they can summit. And if they don't make that window, then they can be trapped up there. And that's why there are so many corpses on Everest. Could the people at Rubkin Lake have been there during the monsoon season and killed by a sudden deadly storm? It's quite possible, particularly as we explained when they usually take that pilgrimage, right? One key discovery the scientists made in the 2005 expedition was that three of the skulls they'd collected had suffered compression fractures on the shoulders and crown of the head that had most likely killed them. They were killed by large, heavy, round objects falling from above. They were killed by hail. Yeah, and the hail in this area can be vicious. Hailstones have been found in this area that were as large as nine inches across. I mean, falling from the height of the clouds, that would do it. The scientists concluded that the people at the lake were most likely pilgrims, and they'd all been killed at the same time in a freak hailstorm around 800 AD, as confirmed by carbon dating. So, the myth about the goddess visiting her wrath upon the king and his disrespectful partying pilgrimage in the form of a hailstorm was probably the closest thing to a true account that there was. And for a while, that was the end of the story. Until another study published in 2019 upended everything. Let's hear about this new study from 2019. So the new study was conducted by a team of 28 Indian, German, and American researchers from 16 different institutions. The lead researchers included Dr. Naraj Rai, an expert in the study of ancient DNA, from the Birbalsani Institute of Paleosciences in India, as well as Dr. David Reich, a Harvard geneticist. They used the most cutting-edge advances in carbon dating, biomolecular and genomic analysis, taking samples from 38 skeletons that had been held in storage by the Anthropological Society of India. They analyzed the DNA in the bones and found that these skeletons belonged to three separate genetic groups. These groups died by the lakeshore, not in a single event in the 800s AD, but in several distinct events separated by a thousand years. The first genetic group, called Rubkund A, consisted of 23 skeletons. They were found to be of South Asian descent. They were unrelated to each other and genetically diverse. 
They seem to come from all over India. And that kind of makes sense because this procession does attract people from all over India. Like it's a real, like not just the locals do it, people come from all over the country to do it. So these, uh, this group of people, uh, Rupkan A, died sometime between the 7th and 10th centuries AD in what was possibly three or four separate events. The second group, called Rupkund B, consisted of 14 skeletons, both men and women, all unrelated to each other, and they weren't South Asian at all. Their DNA hailed from Greece, specifically Crete, or at least the scientists will tell you their DNA is the closest match to people who originate from Crete. And they died much more recently, sometime between 1650 and 1950 AD, although the most likely date is sometime in the 1700s in one single event. There was one person in a third group, Rukun C. This person had Southeast Asian ancestry and also died at the same time as the Greeks. An important thing to note here is that there were only 38 skeletons sampled, but there are possibly between 500 and 800 individual skeletons at this site. So you could be forgiven in thinking that maybe the sample wasn't that representative. However, the samples weren't collected from just one place in the lake, but from all over. This leads researchers to suspect that as many as one in three of the individuals there may have been from Crete. That's so weird. So it's saying that the event that would have led to these people would have been in the lake would have been something to do with these people genetically from Crete. And that's not 100% certain, because like we've said, these bones have been disarticulated too, so where they lie now is not necessarily where they fell. But even one person from Crete in this place, in this time, is weird. These results were so weird that the researchers double-checked by conducting an isotopic analysis on the bones, which can determine where the person grew up in their diet and life. That research confirmed the genomic analysis. The Rupkun B skeleton spent most of their lives eating a Mediterranean diet and most likely grew up in the Mediterranean region. These results were immediately controversial because they did not line up with the known history and folklore of the area. The most in-depth article I've found that talks about this is called The Skeletons at the Lake by Douglas Preston. It was published in The New Yorker in 2020, and I'll link to it in the show notes. It talks about the objections that the scientific, archaeological, and anthropological community has had to these results, specifically that a large percentage of the bones came from Crete, as well as alternative theories proposed and the original researchers' responses to these theories. So first, let's talk about why these results are so controversial. It's because, as we've said, they don't line up with the history and folklore of the time. A large group of Greeks foreigners apparently visited this isolated region in the 1700s. They would have stood out like a sore thumb. I mean, this wasn't that long ago, Jenny. And yet they left no trace in history, folklore, or collective memory. They just vanished into the mountains. Preston says in the article, The Skeletons at the Lake, quote, The historians I consulted, specialists in South Asian and Greek history, and authorities in the history of Himalayan mountaineering said that in recent centuries, there was no evidence of a large group of unrelated people, Eastern Mediterranean men and women, traveling in the Himalayans before the 1950s. One incredulous researcher, the archaeologist Stuart Fidel, said that, quote, It makes zero sense that a party of male and female Greek islanders would be participating in a Hindu pilgrimage around 1700 or 1800 
That's because, one, there's no documented presence of any substantial Greek communities in northern India at those times, and two, there's no record of Europeans converting to Hinduism or Buddhism in those periods. This wasn't a trade route. It wasn't a road people took to get from point A to point B, and it wasn't a tourist destination. It was a pilgrimage route, specifically selected for its difficulty and danger because the danger and arduousness of the journey was one way the pilgrims proved their devotion to their goddess. And it wasn't a tourist trap. Not then. Mountaineering existed, and certainly local people were acclimated to these heights and did go up in them, but Europeans weren't, and the technologies didn't exist at the time that would make these peaks necessarily accessible to more casual trekkers. I mean, I haven't looked into the history of mountaineering in the Himalayas, but there were no oxygen canisters or sub-zero sleeping bags or expedition tents. I mean, Sir Edmund Hillary didn't even climb Everest until 1953. There was no reason to be up there at that time if you didn't worship that goddess. Yeah, I totally agree with you. Like, I'm sure people did sometimes go up there and there was definitely mountaineering before this, but like not in a scale that one in three bones should be Greek, right? So one of the skeptics of these results has been William Sachs, the anthropologist who lived in Juan and got to know the local people and folklore. He's the one who wrote Mountain Goddess that we quoted earlier. He's the one who nearly died by the shores of that frozen lake. So according to him, it's completely unbelievable that a large group of foreigners, people from Crete, would have made this pilgrimage without passing through Juan or the other villages on the route and leaving a trace in the folklore. This wouldn't have been that long ago, only in the 1700s or 1800s, and yet nowhere in the folklore or folk memories preserved in stories and songs in the villages do any Europeans appear. Juan and other villages in the Himalayas are small, interconnected towns. Surely the local people would have noticed a large group of Greeks, men and women, on the pilgrimage route and incorporated them into their folklore because their presence would have been so unusual. And they would have had to stop in one of these villages to pick up supplies and prepare for the journey. They would have had to acclimate. Like, you could take days to acclimate in a village or a base camp before you go higher. They would have had to do that. The local people preserved the memory of a hailstorm from 800 AD in their folklore. Why didn't they remember this? Some researchers suggested that the Greeks were never up there in the first place, that the bones must have been contaminated in storage, probably before the researchers got their samples, since the research itself was conducted in very stringent and sterile conditions. Preston explains how the lead researchers in this project responded to the theory that the bones could have been contaminated in storage in India. Quote, A jumble of bones from a poorly curated storage area would not have the consistency of age, type, diet, and genetics displayed by the Rubkin B remains. The data would be all over the map. Besides, even if these bones were proved to have been mislabeled, that would merely create another mystery. How did a bunch of 18th century Greek bones get into a storage vault in India. Other researchers have questioned whether these bones could have been an isolated population of people of Greek descent who lived in India, perhaps from as far back as the time of Alexander the Great. Alexander invaded parts of India in 326 BC and left behind some of his army and territories he conquered. There are populations in places like Pakistan who claim to be descended from Alexander's Macedonian Greeks left behind to guard his conquests. Could these people be part of a Greek-descended population like this? The Ripkund researchers did investigate this, and they found it to be unlikely. Quote, Of all places in the world, India is one of the most heavily sampled in terms of human diversity, says Dr. David Reich. 
We have sampled 300 different groups in India, and there's nothing there even close to Rupkund B. Even so, the researchers investigated this. They found that the Rukun B's group's DNA did not resemble any Indo-Greek populations in areas of Pakistan, Afghanistan, or northern India that were known. It's far-fetched, but maybe they could have been related to a Greek-descended group that is currently unknown, maybe even one that died out. For it to resemble the Rupkin B group, which did not have Southeast Asian DNA, this theoretical population would have had to have remained genetically isolated from the rest of India for thousands of years. The Rukun B group did not show evidence of inbreeding or genetic isolation. Plus, even if you could argue that the people here were a Greek-descended population living in India, that doesn't explain the Mediterranean diet. The isotope analysis clearly showed that these people spent their formative years in the Mediterranean. Preston tells us, quote, The evidence pointed to one conclusion— they were Mediterranean travelers who somehow got to Rubkund, where they died in a single terrible event. So one of the big mysteries here is this. How did these Greek travelers come to die so far away from home, high up on the roof of the world, along a pilgrimage route for a religion they probably did not follow? Why is their presence not remembered or recorded? They would have stood out to the locals, and yet they vanished into the mountains without a trace, leaving no legends, no folklore, no footprints in recorded history or local memory. It's as if everyone around them simply got collective amnesia. Another mystery is just the sheer number of people in that lake. We all recognize that the Himalayas are a dangerous place, and yet most of the mountains aren't strewn with bodies. True, Everest does have quite a few bodies up there. There are estimated to be about 100 bodies on Everest that haven't been retrieved, but approximately 800 skeletons, all accumulated in this one tiny spot, the size of Jenny's backyard pond where she learned to swim in Vermont. I mean, it's wild. The size of my backyard pond, 800 skeletons, I can't get over it. Is bad weather enough to explain this extremely localized number of dead people in one place? Maybe? Over 1,200 years? Maybe. If these pilgrimages started in 800 AD, assuming the early pilgrims took the same route past the lake the whole time, this means the tradition has been going on for 1,200 years, give or take. And if it happens once every 12 years, that means it's happened roughly a hundred times. That's eight people dying on every procession, which actually doesn't sound like that many given just how dangerous this route is. Yeah, although bear in mind that these skeletons aren't found to have died once every... A lot of them that have been sampled so far seem to have died in a few specific times in a big group. Sure, which makes a lot of sense. Again, I go back to my knowledge of like climbs of Everest because I'm a nerd. You have some seasons where it is easier to climb the mountain because of the weather and some seasons where you might have a lot of people who die in one cataclysmic event. Landslide or violent storm. Death is easily found along the shores of Rubkun Lake. But still, the fact that everyone who died on this route seemed to die right here by the shores of Lake Rubkund and not anywhere else along the route, it, it gives the lake a little bit of a, of a creepy cast to it. It is a tad mysterious. Perhaps someday we'll unravel the mystery. For now, the lake keeps an icy death grip on its secrets.
that's it for this week. Join us next week for whatever we're talking about next. In the meantime, catch up with us on social media at Ancient Hist Fan on Twitter and Facebook and at Ancient History Fangirl on Instagram. Jenny, we also have some nice five-star reviews that have been coming in. We are so happy every time we get to see a five-star review. They're the things that make us keep going, right? When we have a bad day, it's like, thank you so much for this lovely praise. Hit us with it, Jen. Fangying for Ancient History Fangirl. I recently discovered Ancient History Fangirl at the beginning of this summer, and it has sparked so much joy in my life. Jen and Jenny make history come alive in a vibrant and engaging way. I've lost count of how many times I've caught myself laughing out loud while walking down the street or at the gym. I've recommended the podcast to many of my friends, and all of them that have listened also have good things to say about the program. Thanks, Jen and Jenny, for helping me get through what otherwise would have been a long and fairly sad summer. And that's from Josh from Spain. Thank you, Josh from Spain. Thank you so much. That's so kind. We really appreciate it. And we are glad to keep you company this summer. Join our Patreon for extra episodes, videos, a chance to chat with us every so often in the comments, and more. Membership starts at just $3 a month, and our Patreon can be found at patreon.com slash ancienthistoryfangirl. Apologies in advance to anybody's name that we mispronounce. So thank you so much to Audra Kun, Jesse Ruckert. Brandy George. Jessica Deese. Grace Boehm. Vincent Vecchione. Stella, just Stella. And Lauren, just Lauren. Thank you all so much. We really appreciate your support. Thank you so much. We appreciate your support. We couldn't make this show without you. And we will see you next week. Mm